Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as your, yourself. Uh, very few people can find refuge in that. Do you do that? Is that a safe place for you? But then there are some more modern biblical laws, like how to have a quiet time like Jesus did, whatever that means, and how to be authentic and devoted and dedicated and committed and fully surrendered and spirit-anointed, and how to get up at 4 a.m. to read your Bible, disciple like Mary kind of thing, right? And then there are personal preference laws like, you know, the, the law of being right, which today goes everything from how to bake bread to stopping the climate apocalypse, right? Uh, the law of thinness, productivity. These are not safe places, are they? The law of tradition, the law of no laws. There's no safe place in the law. So what is a safe place? So Colin sends me this article this week about stuff going on in the largest evangelical denomination in the world, hands down. The biggest, it's been the fastest growing, it's been the largest for a long time. These are Bible-believing people, Jesus people, people that follow God, people that are like committed to reaching the world kind of people. In 2022, they lost 457,000 members. Last year, they lost 416 congregations. That's 416 churches that are no more. They're over. They're done. They're shut down. Not around. Gone. What is a safe place? Answer, not the church. So what is a safe place? Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers. Man, this dude preached to 25,000 people at one time with no microphone. I mean, I moan about our microphones at times. Can you imagine? On all accounts, whether you're in the church, outside the church, anyone that was around when he was preaching in London, everyone would say, that is a great Man, every preacher that came after him wanted to be like Spurgeon. He is a legend, the prince of preachers. While I was doing just some quick research on him, there's several biographies that are really, really good. Uh, but this is one of my favorite stories about him. He was known for loving cigars. Dad, there you go. And by all accounts, so one, well, here's what happened. On one evening, it was known, like all over London, everybody knew that he loved cigars. So they had this uh, event where a bunch of guest speakers and preachers were preaching and speaking, and one of them stands up and starts preaching against cigar smoking. <laughs> Awkward. Can you imagine? So Spurgeon rises after the speaker's done. Everybody's wondering, ooh, what's he going to say? And he says, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. <laughs> well, one Sunday, Spurgeon says these words, these terrifying words to his congregation. Some years ago, I was the subject of fearful depression of spirit. Various troublesome events had happened to me. I was also unwell, and my heart sank within me. Out of the depths, I was forced to cry out to the Lord, 
just before I went away to Mentone for rest. I suffered greatly in body, but far more in soul, for my spirit was overwhelmed. Under this pressure, I preached a sermon from the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I was much qualified to preach from that text as ever I expect to be. Indeed, I hope that few of my brethren could have entered so deeply into those heartbreaking words. I felt to the full of measure, the full of my measure, the horror of a soul forsaken of God. Now that was not a desirable experience. I tremble at the bare idea of passing again through that eclipse of the soul. I pray that I may never suffer in that fashion again. What is a safe place? Answer, not people, even great people. What is a safe place? We could also add not human approval, but I think everybody knows that, right? Nowhere is the approval of people a safe place because you know when it's good, it's going to be bad. You can't find safety in human recognition, human approval and acceptance and love. There is no safe place there. We can also say not the state, not the culture. You're not going to find a safe place in righteous ideologies. You're not going to find a safe place in their propaganda. And before you get upset at me using that word, I want you to know that that's the exact word that the last book in the Bible says about what the state does. Lastly, not you. There is no safe place with you. There's no safe place in the way you see the world. There's no safe place in the way you think and the way you feel and the way you experience life. There's no safe place in the way you relate to the world, the way you relate to others, the way that you do things and accomplish things. The Bible calls all these things about you, your works. There is no safe place in your works. What is a safe place? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Malachi, are we on, dude? We are. Fantastic. There was a little... Well, here we go. David departed from there and escaped to the cave in Adullam. Last time we saw David, he, he defeated a giant, right? So here's the backstory: King Saul, who's the rejected king, doesn't like the giant killing David anymore. He's the chosen anointed king, right? So you ask yourself, well, why doesn't he? And the reason is, is that the number one downloaded song in all the world at this time was this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Everybody was singing that song in church. They were singing it in family devotionals. It was number one on iTunes and everyone was downloading it on Spotify. The morning shows were playing it. The radio was blaring it. It was everywhere. Everywhere. And the text literally says they were not only singing it, they were dancing to it. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So why does Saul hate David? 
Self-importance can consume you with envy, jealousy. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, that he escaped to the cave in Adullam, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. And there, and they were with him about 400 men. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled to David. So here's the backstory on that. David's on the run. Uh, he stops at a church for help. The church helps him. The church feeds him and his men. The church, David says, I need a weapon. The church says, we have a, we have a sword and gives him the sword. And you might be wondering, well, what is that sword? What kind of sword is it? And the answer is the giant's sword. And David says to the sword when he takes it, yep, there's none like it. Because remember, this is the beginning of the Iron Age. It was the only iron sword maybe in the world at the time. Everybody else had bronze. That's a toothpick going against a sword. So Saul hears about the church helping David, and what does Saul do is he murders the whole church staff. He actually doesn't do it himself. He, he commands his warriors to, they refuse to, but there was a guy named Doeg, and he was later called Doeg the dog, and Doeg the dog slew the church staff, but one escaped, Abathar. And Abathar tells David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, and David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so that we can actually see the spectacular, illumine us to the spectacular realities of this text. Would you shine on the page with glory and grace so that we might not only have information about the safe place, but go there and experience absolute safety and security. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the question is, what is a safe place? Uh, let's look at verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the house of Adullam, and when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone who was there, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul came to him. Everyone who is in distress, verse 2, you see that? Everyone who is in distress. That word distress uh, is used in the ancient world to describe the pillars of the earth. See, the ancient world believed that there were pillars in the earth holding everything together. And so if you're distressed, it means the pillars of the earth are shaking that hold creation and hold countries and hold cultures, and hold communities, and hold families, 
and whole churches and whole individual lives are shaking. Specifically, the pillars held together all of creation and the earth to keep it from collapsing into the sea. And the sea was never a good place. The sea was the great abyss. It's where the monsters of the Leviathan come from. It's where the realm of the dead and the underworld is. It's where everything that decreates goes. So the pillars are a big deal. So everyone who is in distress feels the pillars of their life crumbling. I am crumbling. What is a safe place? Safe enough for the crumbling. Verse 2 again, everyone who is in debt. Yes, there was debt in the ancient world, right? So Martha had school debt. Benjamin, he's a budget loser, ran his credit card up. Magdalene is simply in debt because life is not fair. There was relational debt. Deborah wrecks her marriage in the ancient world. Joshua is abused. Rachel can't forgive. There's also spiritual debt. Eve and Adam knew they were sinners. They knew they just weren't doing sin. They knew that they were in sin, that it was in their nature, and they couldn't shake and get rid of their nature. It followed them everywhere that they went. They knew that sin carried a debt with it, and the debt kept piling. What is a safe place? Safe enough for everyone who's in debt. Verse 2 again. Everyone who is bitter in soul. To be bitter in soul means your inner life isn't working right. Have you ever experienced your inner life not working right? Have you ever experienced that your inner life is sabotaging you? Like Spurgeon. So, Uriah in the ancient world is depressed. His inner world and inner life isn't working right. Sarah, she feels empty. Aaron is suffering without relief. Could be physical could be mental and emotional, could be spiritual, like, where are you, God? What's going on, God? How could you let this happen, God? Do you not care that we are perishing, God? Could be Teresa. Her inner life might not be working because she wants a different life. Where's the peace? Where's the love? Where's the life? All I want is these things you talk about in the Bible. I just want to feel good, Teresa says. I just need purpose and mission in life. A reason to get up in the morning, Teresa says. Her inner life isn't working right. What is a safe place? Safe enough for the bitter in soul. Safe enough for people whose inner lives aren't working right. Verse 14, 
And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. But Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. But Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God will never surrender you to the enemy. Ever. But I'm depressed. I'm distressed. The pillars of my life are crumbling. T.S. Eliot, famous poet, winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1948, said, Human beings cannot bear very much reality. Thomas Brooks, who says the same thing, but he says it in a more theological way. He's an old, famous Puritan. He says it this way. He says, the motions of divine providence. Uh, divine providence in the ancient world and in doctrine is God's control over whatsoever comes to pass. And so that means that whatsoever comes to pass, that God's actually in control of it, the Bible says. And so that raises all kinds of questions, right? Because a lot of stuff that comes to pass is crazy and evil. Our sin comes to pass, right? So he says, the motions of divine providence, God's control over whatsoever comes to pass, a pandemic, threatening nations, cultural strife. The motions of divine providence are so dark, so deep, so changeable, that the wisest and noblest Christians or believers cannot tell what conclusions to make of them. He is saying that no one, no Christian, no theologian, no Spurgeon, no Paul can look at whatsoever comes to pass and say, I know what it means. In other words, he's saying that the pillars of the earth are never found in your circumstances. That if you're trying to find something to hold you together, you're never going to find it in your circumstances. You're never going to find it in what comes at you. Never. Good or bad. You're never going to find it in how people treat you. Good or bad. You're never going to find it in your performance, how it goes. Good or bad. You're never going to hold yourself together in any of those things, in your circumstances. But it also says that it you're never going to find the pillars of your life in your inner life, what comes out of you. You're never going to find it in how you think. You're never going to find it in how you feel. You're never going to find it in your experiences. You're never going to find it in the way you interpret reality. You're never going to find it in your doings and workings and relatings. You're never going to find it in your relationships. So here's what we know about David so far in the Bible, okay? He suffers for 20 chapters. 20 chapters. What are the circumstances of David for 20 chapters? What, is his, what comes at David for 20 chapters that we are looking at right now? 
Here it is. You ready? Hate, hunted, and homeless. So if David is looking for pillars to hold him together from his circumstances for 20 chapters, all he can hold on to is hate, hunted, and homeless. So what about do we know about the next 20 chapters? What about his inner life? If he was to turn to his inner life and try to find the pillars of the earth in his inner life, what's going on in his inner life for 20 chapters? You know what goes on for 20 chapters? Distress. Don't forget this. Remember in verse 21, if we can put it up there. Abathar tells David that Saul killed the priests of the Lord. And don't miss what David says. I knew on that day, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Oh no, people have died because of me. So here's what we know about David so far in the Bible. He suffers for 20 chapters. But God loves him in his suffering. But God holds him in his suffering. But God works in him and through him in his suffering. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, he says it this way. Divine wisdom and love will so order all things that come to pass here below that they shall work for the real spiritual and eternal good of those who know him. All the rugged providences that David met with only contributed to taking him to the throne. Every single one. There's tons of mystery here, y'all, but what this means is when Paul gets a hold of this, maybe Paul was thinking about this text. He could pick any text. He could do Joseph. He could do the whole Bible. But he basically says, God overrides everything for your good. Not that everything's good, but he takes whatever's going on, the bad, the evil, your own sin, and he overrides it, overcontrols it, overmasters it so that it only ultimately brings good in your life. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God will never surrender you to the enemy. This is a pillar. This is a safe place. There's also a very practical help in this particular text we just looked at for everyone who's bitter in soul. If you are someone whose inner life is not working right, if you're bitter in soul, there's some very practical help for you right now, and here it is. Your inner life is not a pillar. Your inner life tries to tell you, I am the pillar. Listen to me. 
but your inner life is not a pillar. That means that there is another pillar out there that can stabilize you, hold you together, and actually give you new thinkings and new feelings and new experiences and a new inner life. But if you think that your inner life is the pillars of life in your life, they will wreck you. But so practical help is from this text that God will never surrender you to the enemy. That all of a sudden you have a pillar outside of you. So you don't have to keep looking inside yourself to find something to hold on to. You look outside yourself to the pillar that's already there. For instance, much of our bitter and soul comes from believing that you have been surrendered to the enemy, does it not? Think about it. Think about your inner turmoil. Most of it comes from, I've been surrendered to the enemy. I've been surrendered to sin. I've been surrendered to its debt. I feel condemned. I feel like I'm worthless. That's called condemnation. Condemnation is the root to a lot of inner turmoil. Fear of punishment is the root to a lot of inner turmoil. It's maybe the root of depression and despair. Shame. I mean, Brene Brown, I still hate her. She made all the money. I should have wrote those books before she did. Millions and millions on writing books about shame, that primal painful feeling of not being enough. That's an inner life that's not working right. But that is a feeling, that is a thought that you've been surrendered to the enemy. How about death? You've been surrendered to death. Some of you know that. Some of you, you need to think of the little deaths in life. You need to think that you've been surrendered. You think you've been surrendered to loneliness. You think you've been surrendered to a relational wreck. You think you've been surrendered to your dreams, death of your dreams. You've been rejected. That's a little death. You've been surrendered to rejection. You've failed, so your performance has failed. You've been surrendered. Your identity is you're a loser and a failure because your performance failed. Do you see how this works? Much of bitter in soul, the life, inner life not working right, is because you believe you've been surrendered to the enemy. What is a safe place? And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. God never surrenders you to the enemy, ever, ever. That's a safe place. What is a safe place? Let's go to verse 20. We'll wrap up here. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David what Saul had done. Now I just want to jump down to 22, so this is what he says to Abathar. And David said, I knew on that day that this would happen. Let's go to 23, sorry. Stay with me. 
Stay with me, Abathar. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. You know what the literal Hebrew of that last phrase says? You are safe with me, Abathar. You are safe with me. Where did the distressed go in verse 2? To him. Where did the indebted go? To him. Where did the bitter in soul go? To him. Where did Abathar, the church, go? To him. You are safe with me. Now you know why Jesus is the son of David. Now you know why Jesus is the safer, David. Those of you who are distressed this morning, those of you who are crumbling, hear these words because these are Jesus' words to you. They're not my words. Right now, Jesus is saying to you, by the authority and the power and the reality of this text, you are safe with me. I am the pillar of your life. I am the safe place. So go to him, all you who are crumbling. Those of you who are indebted, Jesus says to you right now, to you, you are safe with me. I, Jesus says to you, those of you that know that feeling, you're indebted. I was surrendered to the enemy so you never would be. You're safe with me. Go to him. Go to him. Those of you who are bitter in soul, your inner life isn't working right. This is what Jesus says to you and he says it to you right now. You are safe with me. I am your pillar. That's why I want to camp out in that Hebrews 4. You know what that means? He is saying, I am your perfect inner life. I am your stainless inner life. I am your sinless inner life. It's not about your inner life. I had a perfect inner life, a righteous, pure inner life for you. So you don't have to look inside to see what's going on. My perfect inner life covers you. All the brokenness and the distress and the things that aren't right. And you know what happens, Jesus says to you? When you get that, you actually start getting new inner lives. So go to him. All right, here's how we're going to end. Do you know what happens to these bitter people in soul? Do you know what happens to these indebted people? Do you know what happens to all the distressed? Do you know who they become? In other words, 
if we were saying it another way, and someone was coming up to me and said, hey, dude, you always preach good news. How can it be enough? Does good news really change you? Does good news really do anything? Does good news really have power in it? Does good news unleash heaven on you when you hear it? Well, here's what happens. You have the distressed, you have the indebted, and you have the bitter in soul. A lousy group of people. A messy group of people. And all they do is go to David. And they become the mighty men. The legendary mighty men of David. Amazing. Amazing. 